0: Well, many wise teachers, and you can probably find this saying all across the boards and spectrums, uh, often say that you're either headed towards a trial, you're in a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. Amen? Amen? I mean, that just seems to be the way that life can run as it's coming at us very fast. And as we consider the life of our guy Joseph, as we've been looking at his life from uh, Genesis, really 37 on, we've seen this to be very true as he's kind of moved in from one horrible situation, being elevated to a better situation, being put back down into a terrible situation. And we can begin to wonder, when is enough enough enough? When will it maybe slow down? Or how about in the midst of these trials, who or what are we going to hang on to in order to give us some hope? And as we look at Joseph's life this morning, we're going to see a few things that he does that should deeply encourage us. He's a man that in the midst of his suffering, his pain, he's a man amidst his awful situation, who continues to serve God and serve others. Not only that, he is a man that has a God-centered perspective. And this morning, we're going to read a pretty big chunk of scripture as we cover chapters 40 and 41. And we see really where this man probably couldn't sink any lower in life and then we see his rise to power. It says in chapter 40, verse 1, sometime after this, that's him being put in prison, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. So a lot of speculation on what kind of an offense was committed here. It was something fairly drastic that landed them both in prison. And if you know the story, is actually going to cost one of them their life. So this probably was no uh, minor assault on Pharaoh. And most people believe that there was something towards his health and maybe even life or death that they tried to commit against this man, though we'd speculate a little bit in there. Verse 2, and Pharaoh was angry with the two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed of the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we've had... Dreams, And there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. You shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as for formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh." But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. That's not a good thing. And hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. He placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. We'll maybe get into 41 here in just a little bit. There's a very famous story that floats around that happened a few hundred years ago or so. And it's around this man by G.K. Chesterton. And it was once said that the London Times wrote this article or whatever the paper there in London and said, what is wrong with the world today? And Chesterton, being a bit of a smart, witty kind of man, wrote back a reply. And it was nothing in great detail, but it's very precise and to the point. And he said, dear sirs, I am. Dear sirs, I am. That's it. And he left it right there to have it hang in the air. And with great wit, he answered this huge, massive question that looms over even culture today. Because when we look around society, each and every person can look out and say, there are problems in the world. And what human beings are very good at doing is being problem identifiers. That's wrong, that's wrong, we should do this better, we should do that better. But very often we neglect the part that we're actually playing in the very problems that go on in the world around us. And here, with brutal honesty, Chesterton answers this question. What is wrong with the world today? Dear friends, I am. And the question that hangs in the air this morning, one in which we hope to somewhat resolve and actually uh, progress in a way that gives us some hope this morning, is a question that Joseph very well could have been asking himself. He even mentions it here in his story, where when he turns and looks there at the cupbearer, he says, remember me, for I am a Hebrew who was stolen from my land. I did nothing wrong. I'm a man who's in this prison, not because I committed some heinous act of crime, But I'm undeserving, actually, to be here. Oh, why do good, or excuse me, why do bad things happen to guys like Joseph? Doesn't that question loom over us and hang in the air a little bit? Why are these bad things happening to good, kind, generous people? And Joseph very likely could have picked up this idea that woe is me, poor me, look at my circumstances, look at my situation, I don't belong here. And this question is a question that has plagued society. It comes out, if you're at all uh, a sitcom watcher, if there's any series that runs beyond a few years, there's always an episode where somebody's wondering, why in the world are all these terrible, horrible things happening to me? I'm a good guy. I'm a good girl. No bad should actually be coming my way. And there's a very simplistic answer to this. It's... The answer that was written into the paper, I am the problem with this world. The very short answer is, there are no good people. Now, we hear that this morning, and even within our culture and society, and it really flies in the face of what people believe about themselves. Sophomore English, Mr. Clemenhagen, my basketball coach, my favorite teacher of all time, you couldn't pit two more opposite people. He once questioned why this Bible thumper left practice early to go to Bible study that evening. This is We are on very, very different ends of the spectrum, but had uh, what I would imagine was some sort of deep respect for each other in any way that that was possible. And I remember sitting in his class, and he liked to do these things called icebreakers in the morning, and he would always put up a question. And the question was to get you to write, but it was also to get you to think Critically, because he was that kind of teacher, always pushing, always trying to get us to go further. I absolutely loved this man, favorite teacher of all time. And he wrote the question: Are people naturally good or are they naturally bad? Are people inclined to goodness? They inclined to evil. And I'll never forget because of my upbringing, I was very quick to answer this question. And as he then surveyed and pulled the class, I was shocked to find that I was in the minority. Maybe 5 or 10% of the class thought what I thought that people are naturally bad. Now, when I say, that people are naturally bad, I do not mean that people cannot do any good kindness or any good acts, good works. What I mean is, at the very core of human nature, We are born with a selfishness. We are born with a desire to elevate ourselves above all others, to have a better view of ourselves than actually exists around us. That is just what we're given to as human beings. And sin was I conceived. At the point of the fall, we turned from God towards ourselves, and we've trampled over and hurt one another in many various ways. And the problem with us is we all want to think we're better than we actually are. A few Sundays back, my uh, three of the four children were up. And I got them cereal on this Sunday morning. It was Ava, it was Benny, and it was Adeline. And they consumed all of the cereal, brand new box. It just The three of them can tank one of those no problem. And so when Eleanor gets up, we've got no cereal left in the house. And I give her yogurt and granola. Now, my oldest child, Ava, she is so like me, it pains me. (laughs) You maybe maybe have one of those kids. And she goes, Daddy, why does Eleanor get granola and yogurt and we got cereal? It's not fair, Daddy. Daddy. That's just not right. And she has this icy laser glare that is just pinned on me from across the room. And I'm shrinking back a little bit. And I go, oh, baby, because it's gone. It's gone. All the cereal has gone, right? I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best that I can. It's not fair. How come she gets this? And how come she gets that? And how come it's playing out this way? And I walked into the bathroom where Jessica was getting ready. And I said, you won't believe Ava. Here she is glaring me down, glaring her sister down over yogurt and granola. Now, now here's the thing. Every Sunday, Ava and Benny get to come here early with me. Every Sunday, Ava gets a treat here with me. Every Sunday, she gets these privileges outside of the two younger kids and beyond that. And I just wanted to look at her and shake her up and go, you only see when it doesn't go your way because you have a terrible perspective. You think it's not fair when it's not happening for you, but you look over, gloss over all of the other times that things are happening for you and not for the other children. This, my friends, is the human heart and the way in which it works. This is the problem with mankind. This is our innate problem since the fall of man. We're selfish, we're about ourselves, we look inward, we wanna consume for us. And you see, it's very easy to look at a question like, why are all of these bad things happening, I'm such a good person, but do you wanna know what the story of the Bible is actually about? It's about God first and foremost, but it's about good things actually happening to bad people, isn't it? I mean, when you really think about it, who is deserving? If there is none righteous, no, not one, why should anything even begin to come our direction or come our way? If we've all sinned, if we've all failed, if we've all fallen short, Why would we have any expectation of anything else? What is wrong with the world today? Dear sirs, it is me. The human heart, when we look at our lives and our troubles and what's gone on, wants to say, God, this is unfair, while ignoring every other grace that has actually come our way in this life. It is lifting the veil to show you this morning. And what I want us to see is how the gospel enters in and the good news of Jesus changes us. And it removes this veil where all of our churchiness and self-righteousness and acts of trying to play and be nice and do good to earn some sort of favor from God is absolutely shattered at the foot of the cross because of what Jesus has done. And he says, listen, you don't get this because you're deserving. You get this because I love you. You're mine. I've called you. And what happens is in this world today, people have a righteousness problem. And what I mean by that is we don't have any righteousness of our own. But it's very evident people crave righteousness. They crave some sort of fairness. It's why they, at times, play the game of religion. It's why that we try to make things right with other people. It's why that we recycle. It's why that we do whatever it is that we're into to make the world a better place. You know why? We know that within ourselves, we're inadequate people, aren't we? We just don't measure up. And that hits at the very core of who we are because of one life experience telling us that we're failures. And we've let others down. We've let ourselves down. That so we sinned against God. And we're trying to cover up our righteousness somehow by doing things. And what we're seeing here this morning is that God's grace that comes to us is a gift that opens our eyes to see who he is and responding to that grace. He brings new birth in us. This is the great news of the gospel. It's very easy to think of ourselves as, why do these bad things happen to me? I'm a good person. But if we change our perspective and say, isn't it amazing that any good happens to us? it'll radically shift how we think and even view the challenges that we go through in life let's look at Joseph a little bit in this when you consider Joseph it would have been extremely easy for him to get derailed from following after God wouldn't it It would have been very easy for him to challenge God and to say, God, this is not fair. The temptation to stop loving and serving both God and others in his trial while he's being mistreated is typically where most humans would turn to. Well, shoot, if this isn't going to go my way, I'm just not going to engage. I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to serve others. I'm not going to worship you, God. I can't sing, you are good. Where is your goodness? But we see something very interesting with Joseph in here this morning. Something that I want to actually sink within our hearts and lives, because in this room here this morning, nobody walks in here with a year that's been 100% perfect. Nobody walks in here without wounds and scars and tragedy and difficulty. Everybody in this place at some point in the last year or so, or maybe in the last week or so, or in the last day or so, they can come in here and say, I'm hurting, I'm suffering, I'm in pain. And what we see in the life of Joseph, he was a man who was hurting, who was suffering, who was in pain. But look at what he does. He notices other people who are in the likewise situation as him. He's not so inwardly focused on him where he can't serve other people. And he comes to them and he says, why are you downcast? Why are you hurting? What's going on with you? I think this is an absolutely incredible, fascinating point in the life of Joseph. A man who in his own hurt, in his own pain, minister and serve to others that are actually around him going through similar circumstances he doesn't just get hung up on what he's going through he says look I'm here tell me your dreams I'm not just going to sulk even though I did the right thing and I ended up in prison I want you to be ministered to I want to serve others around me And this should absolutely blow our minds as we look at this guy because the temptation to shut in when we're hurting is so easy. You can listen last week, but the temptation to despair, the temptation to look inward and say, I'm just gonna get out of the way, move away from friendship, community, nothing to do with that, would be such a, Way to go. Yet here, here, Joseph engages others around him. And what we see in this is not only is he engaging others around him, but God never wastes our bad that happens to us, does he? This is, this is hard to swallow. But God doesn't waste the bad in our lives. And when we look at Joseph, one of the things we have to remember as I was sitting around the table with a group of guys this week, our perspective on life is just far too immediate and short-sighted. Whatever we're going through tends to be the most important pressing thing happening in our lives in the moment. And it can become the very thing that blinds us and doesn't allow us to see the God outside of that problem trying to work and move in our lives in that moment. And if Joseph had the same short-sightedness, he could have looked at his life and said, you know what, 13 years ago, God gave me a dream. That dream is garbage. That's bunk. That's not happening. I'm checking out. I'm done. I'm gonna just excuse myself from whatever God has for me. But he doesn't do that. No matter whatever circumstance or situation he's in, he presses in to the things of God. How do I know this? When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, what did he do? He didn't run because he said, this is immoral, though it was. He didn't run because he's afraid of getting found out or caught. That's not what happened. He said, this would be a sin against my God. He had a God-centered perspective. We see here in prison, Isn't it God who interprets dreams? We're going to see later on in chapter 41, over and over again, he begins to bring in the name of God to Pharaoh and says to Pharaoh, it is God who works these things out. It is God who has decreed this. It is God who has done this. You see, the bad that has happened in his life does not mean that he's been forgotten by God. Or that God is not going to use it. In fact, what we see in this passage is the very sovereign hand of God guiding and leading. And here is something I've never seen before in this section. But when you consider the story of the butler, the baker, and why they're in prison. God has them there and gives them both these dreams. Now think about their dreams. Does Joseph's interpretation of their dreams impact the outcome of what's going to happen for them. It does not. Here's what I mean. When Pharaoh has dreams in the next chapter, Joseph's able to come alongside of him and says, here's the plan. We need to store up so when then there's famine, we can disperse it. That's how this is going to play out. But these dreams that are given to the butler, to the baker, it doesn't matter if Joseph interprets them or not. Why are they a part of the story? They're a part of the story because it's God's way of leading, God's way of guiding, placing those two in his life, giving them those dreams, giving Joseph the interpretation of those dreams, having it actually play out the way that he said it's going to play out in order to have him forgotten, and then two years later, risen back to a place of prominence. That section of the story just absolutely blows my mind. The reason being is God's hand, even in our hard times, is still with Joseph. He's not forgotten. And I know it can feel like that at times in our lives. All this tragedy around us, are you with me, God? Are you leading? God, bringing people into our lives, using them to encourage us, to engage us, to pray for us. What we ought not to do is to move away from that, but to embrace that and push ourselves into it. Do you feel forgotten? There had to be moments when Joseph did. There had to be. It was his biggest fear. Don't let Pharaoh forget me. And then it tells us exactly what happens. That butler Forgot to tell Pharaoh anything about Joseph. Let me ask you today, do you feel forgotten? Are there areas in your life that feel forgotten? Do your marriages feel forgotten? Does the fact that you're still looking for work feel forgotten by God? Does a family member feel forgotten by God, The situation? Lord, why aren't you moving? Why aren't you working? Why aren't you acting in the way that I want you to? Whenever we begin to think like that, and listen to me, it's okay to express our heart's desires to God. Lord, we would love to see you move in this way. We would love if you would spare this situation, restore that friendship, do something in this way. However, whenever we assume that God has to act in that way, we actually Place ourselves outside of really the most authoritative position that God should hold, and we say, We hold this position, God. Do what we say, and then we can restore that friendship relationship with you as well. See, we don't get that in Joseph. He makes this request, but you never then see him going, Oh, woe is me. My life is falling apart. Do you feel forgotten? We want immediate fixes. But life just doesn't happen that way. It's 13 years for Joseph. There's a lot of hard times in that 13 years. Some of you are experiencing the 13 years, the nine years. The temptation is to turn cold and our hearts off to how God wants to work in our own lives personally in whatever situations around us. So how do we keep a God-centered perspective in that moment? If you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Hebrews 6.19. In Hebrews 6.19, we're told, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. Listen, I don't know how many of you like to get on boats But if you've ever been on a boat, whether it's just a little tiny boat, like I took my kids out in with my dad at Haystack this last week, or if you've been on a boat in the sea and you've been fishing, uh, one of the most important tools that you can have in that boat there is an anchor. The purpose of an anchor is to drop down and to keep you within that position that you're at so when, you know, a storm or the wind's picked up, you don't get blown all around. Now, anchors feel like this huge, huge facade to me. Because when we lay that anchor down, our little boat still gets blown all around. The waves still come crashing up on it. And it feels like we're drifting, and it feels like we're moving. And you can look underneath the water and it's looking a little bit better than what it looks like up on top. But even with an anchor, it can still feel like that you're being tossed to and fro. And one of the reasons I love the imagery of the scripture here is as it talks about an anchor, our anchor is to be that hope that we have in Christ. But just simply because we have that hope in Christ doesn't mean that we're not going to be like somebody on a boat being tossed around by the storm. But we're fixed We're fixed to the ultimate hope that we cling and hold on to in the midst of every trial, circumstance, and situation that you'll ever walk through. Now listen to me. Every single person has a hope that is their anchor. Every single person in here, I don't care your worldview, you have a hope that is your anchor. And what I mean by that is when life goes wrong, there's something you turn to to try to give you stability. Now, that can be numbing out. That can be a relationship. That can be your work. That can be a whole lot of things that we have in our life. But no matter what, when trials come and storms are raging, every single person has some sort of hope that they're anchored to. What this scripture is talking about is to us, our hope that our soul is anchored to is Christ the rock. And what that means is no matter what circumstance or situation comes our way, we can cling to him in the midst of trial, trouble, and difficulty as our hope to hold on to in this life. And I want you to ask a very personal question of yourself right now if you find yourself in one of these circumstances. What have you been holding on to to get you through your season of pain? And listen to me, it can't be, well, when things get better, I'll be better. It can't be, I'm just going to check out until things calm down. It can't be another relationship because that person is going to fail you and make things 10 times worse than when it began. It cannot be a job. It cannot be a hobby. What in the world are you going to hang on to In the midst of your storm, what is going to anchor you? How do we keep a godly perspective? It's to make Christ our anchor. Listen, how did Joseph do that? There's a few things in here. When he told the baker and the butler the dreams, he himself held on to God as we see, because he says, these dreams, they belong to God. They're his The God that I love, the God that I worship, this God is the God that is giving him the right perspective. In chapter 41, same exact situation. Even though he could have felt very left alone and ignored by God, he still says, this God is the God that is able to interpret these dreams. Also, he says, God is going to bring this about. He's the sovereign God. I can trust him. Joseph, later on, we're not going to read it for sake of time, in chapter 41, he gives his kids names. And those names have very significant meaning. That God made him forget his affliction and that God made him fruitful. This is a man who for 13 years held on to God in the midst of his storms. And for that reason, he could take great hope in the God that loves and cares for him. See, we need to be anchored to him, number one. Number two, we worship our way through the storm. So you're always worshiping. We say this all the time here. You don't shut it off. You don't get to turn it down. You're gonna go, and you're gonna go worship something this afternoon. We're always worshiping. And when trials can cause us to despair, It's then God who actually we should be giving praise to in the midst of our trials. We have opportunity to turn to God in prayer. We have opportunity to come alongside of the body of Christ and be encouraged through fellowship, to take in the word of God, to be encouraged through that. You see, we worship our way through the storm, and that's what enables us to have a godly perspective. If you've ever offended somebody, done wrong, And you run into him at Costco or Freddy's. What do you want to do? Like, oh, I did need that, right? I mean, how many times have we done this? See, when we've done wrong, we want to avoid. Don't you think that's somewhat of the similar attitude we can have towards God? When we're angry with him, we want to avoid him. We want to turn. We want to run. But yet we ought to have the very opposite reaction. We have to run to God, not from God in our greatest moments of despair. I want to read a story to you guys this morning and then one last point and we'll close out here. And maybe you're familiar with this. You say, well, that's, that's great for Joseph. I mean, but that was so long ago and he had dreams. I mean, the Bible talks about him. Obviously, he, he loves God, right? You might know a man by the name of Horatio Spafford and I'm going to read his story And then you're going to go, I do know him. He was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago with a lovely family. A wife, Anne, and five children. However, they're not strangers to tears and tragedy. Their young son died with pneumonia in 1871. And in that same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire. Yet God, in his mercy and kindness, allowed the business to flourish once more. On November 21, 1873, the French ocean liner Ville du Havre was crossing the Atlantic from the US to Europe with 313 passengers on board. Among the passengers were Mr. Spafford and their four daughters. Although Spafford had planned to go with his family, he found it necessary to stay in Chicago to help solve an unexpected business problem. He told his wife he would join her and their children in Europe a few days later. His plan was to take another ship. About four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the Villa de Havay collided with a powerful iron-holed Scottish ship with Lock Earn. Suddenly, all those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought her four children to the deck. She knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanita and prayed that God would spare them if he could. Be his will, or to make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within approximately 12 minutes, the Villa du Havre slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of its passengers, including the four Spafford children. A sailor rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down spotted a woman floating on a piece of the wreckage. It was Anna still alive. He pulled her into the boat. They were picked up by another larger vessel, which nine days later landed them in Cardiff, Wales. From there, she wired her husband a message which began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Mr. Spafford later framed the telegram and placed it in his office. Another of the ship's surveyors, Pastor Weiss, later recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they've been taken from me. Someday I'll understand why. Mr. Spafford booked a passage on the next available ship, left to join his grieving wife with the ship about four days out. The captain called Spafford to his cabin and told them they were over the place where the children went down. According to Bertha Spafford Vesser, a daughter born after the tragedy, Spafford wrote, it is well with my soul. And maybe you know the hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. When I first heard that hymn, I always understood it in the sense of it is well with my soul because Christ has saved me. When I first heard the story years ago of where this hymn actually comes from, he's not simply writing it as well with my soul because I have peace between me and God. He is looking at what is possibly the most gripping, trying tragedy a human being can face. And he looks it in the eyes and he says, it is well with With my soul, I'm going to trust you, God. That is a God-centered perspective. And if this morning we can learn one thing and walk away with one hope this morning, my prayer is this for our church is that we would take away from the difficulty and the trials we walk through and we look through them with the lens of, God, whatever comes my way, it is well with my soul because you know far better than I'll ever know what is good for me. How do I know if it's good that they go on to survive? How do I know if it's good that I go on to get a job, a raise, move out of the area? Lord, I can honestly say, whatever comes my way, it is well with my soul. Because we don't all get Joseph's outcome, do we? There's a man in the scriptures by the name of John. We know him as John the Baptist. And good old John is preaching and teaching the coming of Jesus. John has some of the most famous words we say. He must increase. I must decrease. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not even worthy to unloosen your sandal strap. This man embodies a heart that serves and loves God. And there was Herod living lavishly and in all kinds of sin. And John confronts him and calls him out and he's thrown in prison. And as he's there in prison, his disciples, they go to Jesus with one question. Are you the Christ? Jesus gives the most beautiful answer in the world. He turns around. He heals the blind. He makes the deaf hear. Those that are sick around him, he touches them. And he says, go and tell John what you have seen. What he's doing is taking from Isaiah, there's this passage where it says what the Messiah would be doing. And part of that was even setting the captives free. And they go back to John and they basically get this answer, I am he, there will never be another. And what happens to John? Does he get elevated? Absolutely not. He loses his head. It's lopped off. We all want Joseph's story. And we forget John's story. Gee, thanks, Pastor. What an encouraging word this morning. (laughs) So fun. It's so great. You know what I love about John? He goes, I'm not looking for you to spring me, Jesus, because if you're the Christ, that's all I need. That's all I need. He came with one question, which is the right question. See, a lot of people come to Jesus with the wrong question. I'm interested in Jesus, will he help fix my marriage? I'm interested in Jesus, will he help me get through med school? I'm interested in Jesus, will he help me raise these kids up really well? And people come to Jesus with all these questions. And then they're going, we're not hearing him. We don't understand what's going on. We come with him or come to him with this idea that here are the questions. Now you answer them the way in which we want them answered. What does John do? He says, are you the Christ? And if he's the Christ, the outcome of any circumstance or situation, that is sufficient for me. It may not be momentarily pleasant. You may still get tossed around. You may get left in prison for two more years, but if he is the Christ, can we just begin to trust and say, God, you know best. That is what I want us to walk away from with here this morning. You look at men who have been forgotten and heads lopped off, and the answer to the question is, yes, I am the Christ. And in our moments of abandonment and loneliness, where doubt can creep in, what people desperately want to know is, am I loved? Am I cared for? And while trials and troubles can create space for disappointment in our lives, we see that God does love, God does care. The problem is is we often come to him with conditions. If you're this, then do that. Well then who's the boss at that point? Us, not God. Come with him. Are you the Christ? Yes, I am. Then no matter what happens, no matter what comes my way, I can trust you. Are you in a storm this morning? Are you headed towards one? Are you on your way out? God has not abandoned you. He is with you. And when we look at this, I want us to understand how our perspective begins to change when we understand that God is with us. We go on worshiping him. We go on serving others, even in the midst of our trials. Let's pray.